well, is there something wrong with, with generating money? It's like, well, it depends on what you're going to do with the money. Mm. You know, like if you're going to spend it all on hookers and cocaine, then probably that's reprehensible. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem mm. with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. So you may be out of here in the background. I am walking home. I've just got off the train uh, from London where I've just interviewed Jordan Peterson. Now I wanted to do something a bit different and give you my thoughts on this interview maybe in a bit more detail than I might normally. So it's not a non-standard introduction if you like. Um, and also because I, I feel sort of quite... Um, pulled how this interview went. Um, I love it when interviews go their own way, um, but I actually only got one question out of all the questions I wanted to ask asked. Uh, and um, it's clear because of how in demand Jordan is, how tight his schedule is. Uh, you know, he's back to back to back to back to back since he's in London. Um, so I feel grateful that we got the 50 minutes that we got. Um, but Jordan even said, wow, how the time flew. And I felt like we were really just starting to get into some depth. Uh, and then we had to finish. You'll probably hear in the interview, um, his assistant or um, agent, she interrupted us. So Jordan Peterson, who is he? You, I'm sure you know who he is. If you don't, then um, you're going to be glad you do know him now. So he is a trained clinical psychologist. He's a university lecturer of many decades. Um, and his book, The 12 Rules uh, for Life, has sold nearly two million copies in the last six months alone. Apparently that's more than any other book in the whole world uh, of uh, any author, even in fiction, which is highly impressive. Um, he rose to fame, I guess, in the last couple of years, commenting on some pretty political and um, polarizing debates, such as the gender pay gap and um, perceived inequality of sex and race and things like that, which kind of made him go viral. He, there was a Channel 4 interview with him where um, uh, a pretty successful interviewer and someone quite high in Channel 4 called Kathy Newman, she interviewed him. The video went viral. I remember watching it thinking, what? That was just like box office. Um, she went at him every which way and I think he handled himself really well and I think the fact that she went after him so hard uh, really did him a favour. Millions and millions of views in, in not much time at all. Um, he's been on some amazing podcasts like Joe Rogan podcast. He's got his own very successful podcast. His YouTube uh, videos have got millions and millions of views. Um, I, I wanted to ask him how he perceived himself, you know, who is Jordan Peterson? And, um, didn't get a chance because we got one out of all the questions asked. So, yeah, I, I'm going to talk a couple of minutes about what I think about this interview before I get you straight in. So, I didn't really know whether to have this interview as one specific theme. Like, I wanted to talk to him about his views on capitalism, 
I didn't really want to talk to him about everything that everyone's been asking him about. So um, I had I wanted to talk to him about some of his views around raising kids to be uh, independent and strong and therefore not overly supported and pushed. Um, I wanted to talk to him about how he's um, dealt with this massive rise in fame uh, and, you know, dealing with all the opportunities that comes his way. And we never got a chance to do any of that. Now, I'm hoping that we're going to get a part two when he's next in London. Um, but just before we turn the um, audio on and I sort of officially started recording, he said, hey, you know, I can talk about entrepreneurship and some of the research I've done into personality types and, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the types of characters uh, that you might want to employ and sort of self-wisdom being an entrepreneur. So we come, I literally, just before I was going on, pretty much just shut my laptop, didn't ask anything I wanted to, and we just sort of went into the character traits of being an entrepreneur. And then the interview sort of took its own route. And I, like I said, I really felt like we were getting into some good discussions and some good deep rapport. Uh, and then it was time to go. So, mm, I'll let you be the judge. I'm on the fence at the moment. I love the interviews when they're not scripted. Uh, but yeah, I do feel like I left some stuff on the table. Anyway, that's for you to decide, not to me. Um, if you've got any thoughts on this interview, why don't you um, tag me in wherever you follow me or um, make a, a mention in one of our Facebook communities uh, because I'd really love your thoughts and, and feedback on this. Um, very different type of interview with the famous, epic, intellectual Jordan Peterson. Well, thanks a lot, Jordan, for coming and doing the interview. Yeah, no, um, no problem. It's funny, I'd planned all these questions and then we've just had a chat before rolling about um, you know, your interest in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that could be the angle we could use on the podcast because maybe it's not what you've talked about on a lot of other podcasts. Mm -hmm. So I might just shut the laptop and we, and we might go down there if that's all right with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, how does psychology, temperament, um, marry up and link with psychology? You're obviously well known for psychology, commentary in other areas, mm -hmm. but maybe we could focus a bit on that domain. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's lots known about what predicts success in different domains across the lifespan, let's say. The first question is, what are the, if you're trying to analyze something like business success um, or productive success, what, what are the proper domains of category? And so if you're trying to categorize jobs, for example, which turns out to be quite difficult, the simplest conceptual scheme that's practical that gets you somewhere is like a two-by-two two matrix. There are simple jobs and complex jobs. That's the first thing that's worth knowing, and it's a continuum, really. But a simple job is one where... Once you're trained, you just repeat what you're doing. So, so factory line work would be, would, would be an example of that. Or, or checking out people at a grocery store, or restocking grocery shelves, or, or, or jobs like that. The best predictors for success in those jobs is conscientiousness, trait conscientiousness. And conscientious people are orderly and industrious. And we don't exactly know why they are. It, it seems like it's associated, oddly enough, with such things as disgust sensitivity. So maybe people are conscientious because they get disgusted with themselves if they're not useful. And guilty. You know, they get guilty if they're not engaging in productive enterprise. And maybe that's a marker for, for a kind of complex social responsibility. Yeah. You know, 
But um, which sounds like the complete opposite of uh, most entrepreneurs I know. Well, the yeah. entre- on, that's that's the thing. The mm. on, entrepreneurs are different. So, so for simple jobs, IQ intelligence predicts how fast you learn the job, but not how well you do it once you learn it. Mm. And what predicts there is conscientiousness. So you basically, if you're hiring people, you want conscientious people who are. That's the most important thing. And then, then the second most important thing is you want people who are relatively low in trait neuroticism, which is a negative emotion dimension because they're less likely to be absentee right. and so forth. So in complex jobs, complex job is one where the demands change on a regular basis. And so most managerial and administrative positions are complex jobs because you can't learn the job once and for all. And then the best predictor for complex jobs, the first predictor is IQ. And the second predictor is conscientiousness. And IQ is about three times more powerful than, than conscientiousness as a predictor. Mm. And then, so that's the first, simple versus complex. And then the second would be, the second category scheme would be something like managerial slash administrative versus entrepreneurial. And the entrepreneurial types, actually, they're over with the artists. So the best predictor for entrepreneurial success, first is IQ, but second is trait openness which is the creativity dimension. Mm. So entrepreneurial types tend to be very high in trade openness. And so that sets them with the artists and also with the political liberals because the best predictor of political liberalism is trade openness. Right. So the managers and administrative types, they tend to be conservative and the entrepreneurial and creative types tend to be liberal. Mm. And so if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to be a lateral thinker. And so you'll be the sort of person if they hear an idea, if you hear an idea, that will trigger off a whole bunch of other ideas. And you'll be motivated primarily by interest in pursuing your ideas. But your, your downfall is likely to be organizational administrative ability. So it's often useful for entrepreneurial types to pair themselves with managerial and administrative types. Yeah. You are descri- it's like you are describing my soul here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, there's, there's a tension. There, there's this weird tension mm. between doing one thing right, which is what you need to do if, you're, if you've already decided what it is that you're doing, and scanning the landscape for something new to do that would be worthwhile. Those aren't the same enterprises. Mm. And so most companies are an uneasy marriage of entrepreneurial and managerial types. As the company gets more and more established, the managerial and administrative types tend to dominate. But then that becomes problematic because it means it's more and more difficult for the company to shift mm. laterally when yeah. it has to, which is, again, I think why so many companies eventually fail. Because they, you know, they lose the creative head. Is that what you mean? Sure. They lose yeah. the flexibility. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because they're trying to maximize their ability to implement, but it's very difficult to do that without also simultaneously bearing the cost of narrowing. Mm. Right. Yeah. So the thing is, is if, if you know what you're doing, you want to hire a conservative. If you don't know what you're doing, you want to hire a liberal. Right. Right. So yeah. that's, that's a way of thinking about it temperamentally. Mm. It's also a way of parsing out the political landscape to understand, at least in part, why you need conservatives and liberals. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I find a business is like a family. And in the past, in my company, I've had all under 25-year-old male entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Why did we hire them? Because that's what we were like. Right. And people, I've found entrepreneurs tend to hire versions of themselves yeah. at first. 
instead of being more self-aware to go, actually, I'm chaotic, yeah. disruptive. What I need is order. Yeah. And yeah. Um, like you said, good administrative yeah. skills, conscientiousness. So you go through that chaos of hiring people too much like you and, yeah. and having like too much male energy or too much creative energy. Then you maybe react and hire a lot of administration and conscientiousness and then you maybe lose the soul in your company. Yeah, yeah. And then the creative's trying to drag the, the company forward. Feels like he's been getting held back by everybody. Well, and it is, it yeah. is, but the funny he's, thing- he's, It's needed to hold him back, but they've yeah. got to let him go as well, well or her, haven't well, they, well, otherwise? That, well, that's the, that's, that's, the, that's the problem. The fundamental problem is most new ideas are stupid, dangerous, and counterproductive. And they're the ones but that some, change the world. <laughs> well, 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 they are sometimes, mm. they are sometimes, but. There's a subset of new ideas that even though new ideas are dangerous and disruptive and often counterproductive and generally don't result in a productive company, mm. some of them are absolutely necessary and they're the thing you need to do next. Mm. And so, and, and that's a very difficult problem to solve because it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the fundamental problem of innovation. Mm. It's like most innovations aren't justified or warranted, but some of them are absolutely crucial. So how do you distinguish between them? And the answer is, well, we, we don't know. The part of the way that you do that in a dynamic economy is you let and encourage a whole host of entrepreneurs to produce their ideas and you let almost all of them fail, which is kind of painful for the entrepreneurs. Mm, but, but, but limited company and all those kind of structures yeah. are set up to make that more safe, aren't they? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. well, those are, those are, this is something that's massively underappreciated, I would yeah, say. Yeah on the liberal left end of the political spectrum is people just don't understand how absolutely revolutionary mm. the idea of a limited company is because what a limited company allows is a limited company allows your idea to die instead of you yeah, yeah. and that's a m big deal yeah, because, otherwise no one would take the risk would well, they of creating anything well they, they, they that's right no no one could bear the mm. risk because if you failed, you, it would wipe you out mm. permanently. It's like, well, who the hell's going to take that risk? Yeah. And so the fact that the limited liability is one of the, the, the unbelievable tech. I can't believe that we That's ever That's like an innovation it. that we all just forget Jesus. about, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it? And it's such a merciful innovation. Yeah. It's like, you mean I, I get to fail and no one's going to kill me? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a, no one's going to throw me in debtor's prison? It's mm. not going to hang around my neck for the rest of my life? I can actually take a risk? So because... The other thing you see often with entrepreneurs is that they fail a lot before they succeed. And so, I mean, you have to be pretty damn spectacularly lucky to have your first idea mm. when you don't know what the hell you're doing mm. be a spectacular success. Or maybe it's a good idea, but you weren't ready and you're oh, more yes, ready. Or the, or the marketplace isn't yeah. ready. Or I mean, that's the other thing that people don't really understand is because if you're a naive entrepreneur, you think, well, all I have to do is make a great product. It's like, no, that's about 5% <laughs> yeah. of it. You know, and, and that shocked the hell out of me when I started building software, for example, mm. because we assumed that we, we, we developed software to help people um, select better employees, and we never could sell it except in, in very rare circumstances. But we assumed that if we had a product that was validated, we could show that it had the effects that we wanted and that it was more efficient than other products in the marketplace that selling it would be easy. It's like, well, that's just so wrong. I selling and marketing yeah. things is impossible. I love it when people say, oh, the product just sells itself. <laughs> it's just yeah. one of those things which yeah. are like, you've not been in business a very long time. Um, yeah, because you've got market forces, you've got your skill set. You could have a great product, mm -hmm. 
you're just not ready to sell it because you haven't got enough experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and you don't know how to price it. Yeah. And you don't know who to talk to to sell it. You know, you can spend your whole life, especially if you're selling to companies, which is virtually impossible, talking to the wrong people. And it mm. feels like work and it really is work, but yeah. you never end up contacting a real decision maker. Or, and then you can't tolerate the excessive delay. Like you think, well, I'm going to go sell this product to a big company because because they can obviously provide me with a massive contract. It's like, yeah, but there's a relationship between the size of the company and the delay yes. in the implementation. And the de delay can be years. Yeah. And then what this is this happened to us all the time. It was very painful. Um, we'd get right to the point of signing with a large company and there'd be an internal management transformation and the person that we were dealing with Gone. would disappear. Yeah. It's like, oh no, it's <laughs> like, now what? We actually had that happen with a really big company in New York. We were right on the verge of signing uh, a contract for use of this self-authoring program that we designed, which helps people plan their lives. And the, the week that we were ready to sign the contract, the CEO resigned. So yeah. Gone. Two, it was probably a year of sales and marketing work just evaporate, yeah. you know, and, and and you don't get paid for any of that. You get no, you get no reward for getting 364 days. No, down the you certainly don't. Days. You certainly don't. Well, and it's also really easy for um, one of the things that tech incubators do really badly, I think, is they do lots of things really badly, generally speaking. But one of the things they do that's very counterproductive with the people that they train is they they emphasize the development of the company, but they don't force their entrepreneurs to find customers because your first customer is the most difficult thing you'll ever do as a business person in in my experience to find someone who will actually pay you that first time that isn't your mom yeah that's or, right yeah. well that's yeah. right that isn't a family member yeah. that's an actual customer yeah. and the the other problem that people face when they're trying to sell a new product is one of, the one of the ways that people decide whether they're going to buy something is whether or not, A, they know anyone else who's already bought it, or B, if there's other people in their domain that are already using it. Mm. And if, if your sales pitch is, well, no, this is new and revolutionary, you think, well, that's a wonderful sales pitch. It is, like, it is if you're talking to someone who's entrepreneurial and risk-taking and interested and interested in revolutionary ideas. But if you're talking to a middle manager in a company, the last thing that person wants to hear is, well, you could be a risk taker and introduce this into your company. The person's yeah. thinking, I don't want to put my job or mm. reputation on the line for your product, even if it is revolutionary, in part because if it succeeds, I probably won't be rewarded for its success. So when we were selling our our employee selection software, for example, we, we ran into, we were academics, or, and so, you know, there was lots of things we didn't know about business. And one of the things we ran into, which was so funny, we talked to the people who were doing the hiring, and they had a certain budget, which was usually lower than, because they had virtually no budget for hiring, weirdly enough. Um, so what we were charging for the product, which was still extremely modest, exceeded their budget. We said, well, look, you're going to make a 250-fold return on this. That's, that's the, pessimistically, it's 50. Realistically, it's 250, and the upper end was more like 500. So it's a no-brainer to implement this. It's like, well, we're budgeted on the cost side. Mm. What do you mean? Well, if we, if we hire more productive employees, we won't be rewarded for that. 
we'll just be punished for spending more money on yeah. the outset. I yeah. thought, well, we can't even talk to you because I'm trying to sell you something that will benefit your company. But for you, as the decision maker, there's nothing but risk in, mm. in implementing the new process. Yeah. So that just blew me away. It's like, oh, I see. The hiring budget and the productivity budget aren't associated. So yeah. that's like a fatal impediment to, to our sales process. Mm. So that was, well, we learned lots of things about, yeah. about, and I came out of the whole enterprise with way more respect for people, especially for people who do sales. Mm. Jesus, that's such a brutal job. Yeah. And, you know, when people are, they have a, what, it's easy for people to, it, it's even a popular trope to be somewhat contemptuous of salespeople, you know, all those salespeople. Definitely in so. Britain. We're very mm. reserved when it comes mm -hmm. to selling in Britain. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but, I mean, but, I don't put ads on my podcast. I mean, there's ads on virtually every American podcast. Yeah. I don't put ads. I don't need the revenue. So I, I, in a way, there's the old creative artist side of me that yeah. doesn't want to interrupt my work yeah. with ads. But like, if I started putting ads on my podcast, you know, some people would be okay with it. There'd be a bit of a riot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's a real mistake because it, it, it's we're no we're not giving the devil his due. It's really really hard to be a good salesperson, mm. and people like that are unbelievably rare and they're unbelievably valuable. And nothing wrong with it, and it doesn't make you a bad person, mm -hmm. and you're not selling your soul. Well, it's also it's also. <laughs> How are, how are you going to generate revenue yeah. and without that? How's economy how going to eat money even well, going to move in an see, economy? Yeah, well, and the other thing that happens with the artistic and maybe the entrepreneurial types too is that they, they end up with contempt for the business end of the process. And that's a real mistake, you know. I mean, one of the things that I tell people who are artistically oriented, let's say, so they're in the entrepreneurial category is, look, um, it's virtually impossible for you to monetize your product. That's the first thing you have to understand. So maybe you'll get lucky and you'll figure out a, uh, a strategy. But if you add contempt for the sales and marketing process to that impossibility, you can be bloody well sure that all you're going to do is starve. Mm. So, so you better drop your contempt for the sales and marketing end of this if you, if you want to sustain yourself through your life. And that's going to be a prerequisite for your creative endeavor. Yeah. And so, and art schools and, and, and establishments like that do an absolutely dreadful job of well, they don't teach it. No, I, I was an artist. All. I was an artist. I went through art school. Yeah. They don't teach it. No. Never once. No, I know. I know. And it's, it's and I mean, how I, are you going to commercialize your venture? How are you going to pay for your mortgage? Mm -hmm. What just, how are you going to buy food? Yeah. With a, just like, a paintbrush and a canvas. Oh, Jesus. And, it, and well, and artists are in particularly dire position because as a, a visual artist, for example, you're not only competing with all the visual artists that now exist and there's plenty of them. But you're also competing with all the dead artists who were way, who who already have an established reputation mm. and a body of work that's that's being, what what still being exchanged in the marketplace. Yeah. And so you don't want to add contempt for the sales and marketing process no. to that. And you also probably have to understand that if you want to be an artist, that you're also going to have to have have to have another job. Yeah. Because it's just unless you want to bang your head against the wall until it's bleeding. Mm. It's so hard. And I mean, I've known some people who are outstanding artists and I've known very, very few. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who was able to make a living from the outset of their career as a, as a non-commercial visual artist. Brutally difficult. Yeah. So, and, and adding contempt to that is not helpful. Mm. You should be very thankful that sales and marketing people exist. Even I know there's that 
what would you call it, the mercantilist commercial element to it that is sort of, in some sense, you can consider it distasteful from the perspective of higher aesthetics. But don't confuse your ignorance of something important, sales and marketing, with your moral purity. Mm. That's a big mistake. It's a big ethical mistake, and you will pay for that. Yeah. So... Mm. So I think there's some simple solutions. I almost like want to sort of summarise this part so far. I've always enjoyed selling straight to consumer yeah. and not to businesses. Yeah, I like that better um, too. I think that you've got more customers. You're always at the decision maker. Sometimes yeah. it's the husband or the wife who owns the credit card strings. Yeah. But other than that, you're always at the decision maker. You learn very intuitively and quickly. You get a quick feedback loop. Yeah. Whereas, like you said, in the, if you're dealing with a manager who's got their own motives... And then a company who's got different motives, yeah, they're not going to tell you right. the truth. You've got to unwrap yeah. all of they that. They don't even know what the no. truth is necessarily because they, they can't represent their business because they, do, well, they don't embody it. Yeah. So straight to consumer is number one. I think the second thing is, I think probably it is fair to say that sales and marketing can be learned. But I think it's also fair to say that sales and marketing are more likely to succeed in certain personality traits. Yeah. Well, you need to be extroverted, for sure. example, yeah, yeah. So you, and, and assertive. Yeah. And it also helps to be emotionally stable because yeah, what's, your, what's your failure rate as a salesperson? Oh, it's like 50 to 1? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's like you have, to, you have to have a constitution of bloody iron to yeah. tolerate that, you know, because the, what's the <laughs> default answer to you, do you want to buy something no. from me? No, yeah. no, it's no, go away, yeah. right? It's worse than no. Yeah. It's like no and you're bothering me. Yeah. And then even if the best you get is... Well, that's I'll worse, think by about the way. It. That's worse than no, yeah. I'll think about it. The middle grounds. Yeah, well, at least you, with a no, you can move on. That's and move right. On. You drown in. That's right. Well, that's the problem with, with trying to sell to big companies. Yeah. It's like, it's never well, a no. Maybe, maybe <laughs> we'll do this. It's like, when? Well, maybe in the next six months <laughs> to a year, which will be delayed. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, we found selling direct to mm. consumer way less, way less uh, stressful. Yeah. And, and, you know, the funny thing and is... And more rewarding. Sorry to yeah, jump in more there, rewarding. More rewarding because you can actually change an individual's life. Yes, yes. With a good product. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about, you know, you kind of have this idea that you could, you could, let's go for a big company, a couple of contracts and we're set. It's like, yeah, but you'll die in the yeah. interim waiting for the contracts. Yeah. So, and it is so interesting to think about that in terms of the, the error of Marxist criticisms of capitalism because the Marxist criticism was something like, capital will accrue in the hands of a smaller and smaller number of individuals, which it does, but the individuals rotate. That's the thing that Marx yeah. got wrong. Right. Now, with big companies, you think that, well, the big companies absorb all the capital, but the thing is they fail. Yeah. The reason they fail is because they get so large, they're so ponderous that they, they move so slowly yeah. that eventually they make themselves extinct. And yeah. you experience that when you're trying to sell to them. It's like, oh, you have this rule. Oh, you have this rule. Oh, you also have this rule. Oh, this rule means we have to completely rewrite our software. Yeah. You know, and then, then, then well, and, and, and these special adaptations have to be made. And there's 20 people to clear that with. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's brutally difficult. Right. So, so this Marxist capitalism yeah. thing, that was one of the initial um, things I wanted to talk about. And I want to come to that in yep. a minute. Yep. I'm, bu I'm bursting now with questions and I know you've got to go at 12. So, okay, so the next summary then is... 
something that worked for me and my business partner because you know we're I don't like the word self-made because I don't think anyone's self-made I think you need people around you but self-made in the sense that we weren't given money to start and we didn't have family money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah I, that's hard and I think the gift in the business we've grown is I have a business partner who's very conscientious very analytical very skeptical mm-hmm. his answer mm-hmm. is always no right right He's, yeah for years, I have a partner like that too. right and then mm-hmm. and so and I'm the opposite mm-hmm. and so that allowed me to go and do the sales and the marketing and allowed him to clear up my mess, yeah. accounts, finance, structure, organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to anyone listening who isn't really a natural sales or marketing person or doesn't want to learn it, partner or align with someone well, who is. Well, the, and you may probably make a great team. Well, and it's also, un, it's also really important to understand that these things, they can be learned to some degree, but there are temperamental proclivities. And so if you're, if you're open, Technically, that's a big five trait. You can, your people who are listening, I have a website, understandmyself.com, understandmyself.com. And if you want to know your big five profile, it will provide that. Mm. And it breaks each of the big five into the two subcomponents. And so it's very useful so that you can go there and find out what Mm. temperamental pattern you have. If you're high in openness, then you're oriented towards entrepreneurial activity. If you're high in conscientiousness, then you're oriented towards managerial activity. If you're high in agreeableness, customer service. Yeah. Disagreeable people, well, disagreeable people are good for, they're also good for managerial positions if they're not too mm. disagreeable. If you're extroverted, that tilts you towards sales. These things are, and so if you're gonna hire someone yeah. for the job, you should first of all understand that every person isn't for every job and you might as well match the person mm. and the temperament to the job. And if you know your own temperament, then you can think, well, I'm an entrepreneurial type. I'm high in, con- in openness, but low in conscientiousness. It's like, well, Christ, you're going to be an implementation catastrophe. Yeah. You're not going to do the paperwork. You're not going to do the follow-up. You're a mess. Mm. So find someone who's orderly. Well, I can't work with someone who's orderly because they'll constrain me. It's like, yeah, they will, and you need it. Yes. And so there's that tent. You know, there's something interesting about how your brain works. So if you want to make a really fine adjustment with your finger, the best way to do it is to push in one direction and then push against your finger with the other finger because then you can make unbelievably tiny corrections. And so a, a system seems to work better this way of a right and left hemisphere. Mm. If there's dynamic opposition, because you'd think, well, I'd move a lot faster if everything got the hell out of the way. Yeah. It's like not necessarily. You'd, you'd crash and burn quicker. Well, well that, that's yes. exactly it. And so, you know, you said you partnered with someone who had traits that opposed yours. Mm. My, one of my partners is far more disagreeable than me. And I would say more orderly and way more skeptical. Mm. And I'm always out there going, well, we could do this. We could do this. Yeah. We could do that. Here's an opportunity. Here's another opportunity. And what he does is... No, a lot, no, a lot no, of it is no. no. Yeah, a yeah. lot of it is no, and it's frustrating, of course. Yeah, because we take it personally. Well, and because you you see, if you're open, you see the landscape of opportunity. But a quick death is better than a slow, painful death. Mm. And working with someone who says no offers you the opportunity to have a quick death, yeah. and that's yeah. actually preferable. Mm. So you have to tolerate that tension of opposites if you're yeah. going to build something that's that's lasting and and that's actually implementable. Mm. So I think this is vital to talk about. And I I think generally in the media, the world, our opinions, I think people are too extremist. Everything is good or bad, black Mm. or white, right or wrong, up or down, left or right. And to sort of continue your analogy, one of my favorite bands is Radiohead. Um, And they're very big in the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I really like Radiohead. And 
if you study them, they've all got very different musical tastes and they often have clashes around the kind of music that they want to write. Mm -hmm. So the drummer, when they were big with OK Computer, was like, why can't we write three and a half minute pop songs? That's what's made us massive. And Tom York is like the antithesis of that. And as soon as we're big and well known and number one, I want to do something completely different. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, forget, these are my words, not his, but, you know, disruptive and um, maybe, a, you know, a little bit, bit more anti-pop. Um, and then you've got Johnny Greenwood, who's classically trained, whereas Tom York plays the piano completely unclassically trained. Mm -hmm. If you have a classically trained pianist, they're like, how does Tom York play the piano like that? The timing, everything, it's, it's wrong. It's mm -hmm. all wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that makes his haunting melodies. Um, and so I'm convinced that a five piece with all of those push-pull creative mm -hmm. clashes, which they've probably had to learn mm -hmm. to drive forward in like an arrow because they've probably had loads of falling outs. Mm -hmm. I believe that is tantamount to them being the band that they are. Mm -hmm. And I can say working with business partners and I have an MD and we have, I mean, we have about 75 staff. And because initially I wanted Progressive to be, uh, hire everyone like me. And yep. then I wanted to hire everyone the opposite of me. Yep. Yep. And then it was all men. And then when we're too many men, it's like too much testosterone. Mm -hmm. testosterone. So then we're all women. And then that brings a different energy. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced with families and companies, there needs to be this balance. Mm -hmm. um, well, these are all these different. So that's genuine diversity. So that's the first thing. If you want genuine diversity, you go for diversity of temperament, right? Not diversity on the basis of ethnicity and that mm. sort of thing. You go for diversity of temperament. And there wouldn't be, from a biological perspective, all these different temperaments wouldn't exist if they didn't have their niches, mm. right? So, because there'd be no place for them. And, yeah. and the thing is, people actually are different, and they're different because differences are required in different circumstances. And it's, well, another reason to, to do the personality testing, I would say, is, mm. well, first of all, it's enlightening. I had my kids do this personality test that I yeah. to told you about. Um, How old are your kids? The, to, they're in their mid-20s now. Oh, I had yeah. them do it when they were in their teens. Mm. And because uh, they, you know, I, I tested out the things I was developing on them. And, and, you know, I know my kids pretty well, or so I thought. And when they did the personality test, it revealed to me things about them that I had misconstrued. It was really useful. Mm. So I thought my daughter was far more disagreeable than she actually was. A lot of the clashes I was having with her, I was having because at that time, anyways, she had pretty high levels of negative emotion. And I thought that she was disagreeable. She wasn't. She's right. very agreeable. But... She, so she would get upset quite easily. And so I learned to some degree to comfort her when she was upset rather than argue with her. Yeah. And that was extraordinarily helpful. Mm. And I thought my son was easy to get along with. And he's unbelievably disagreeable, but he's very, very low in negative emotion. Yeah. So he, he would never get upset about anything. So he's easy to be around. But trying to get him to do something he doesn't want to do is impossible. Mm. He just won't do it. And so that, and it was quite shocking to me that that even though I knew my kids and even though I'm a trained psychologist, I still had elements of their temperament wrong in my conceptualization. Mm. So that was extremely useful to, to, to figure out and, and to really develop an appreciation for the fact that those people who don't think like you, they're actually yes. different than yeah. you. And, and, and in many still areas valuable. better than you. Well, that's the thing is yeah. that, you know, with, with those differences come, well, your temperament is a set of strengths and their mm. attendant weaknesses, right? And you don't get the strengths without the no. weakness. So the thing about open people is like, well, they're creative, but they're all over the place. Mm. And if you're open and high in negative emotion, it's a, it's a rough combination because the openness destabilizes you, right? You don't have a stable identity because you're interested in this and then mm. you're interested in this and then you're interested in that. And, 
And maybe you can handle that, but if you're also an anxious person and have some difficulty with uncertainty, you basically undo yourself by being creative. Mm. It's like, well, how can, you, how can you stop being anxious if you're never in the same place for more than one minute? Yeah. And so lots of people who are really creative and high in neuroticism, they just unglue themselves. Mm. And so for people like that, I recommend it's like, try to make a damn schedule. Yeah. Like try to hem yourself in a bit because you'll just burn yourself out mm. with nervous exhaustion otherwise. Yeah. So, and it's useful to know all of that. Mm. I think so. we're trying to balance these paradoxes and ironies um, because the paradox there is someone, the person who least wants a diary and a structure yeah. probably needs it the yeah, most. Yeah, right. Well, and I have some advice about that sure, too. Please, like, yeah. Okay, so let's say that you're a person that, that, that procrastinates and you don't get things done. Maybe you're creative. You have other things going for you. I would say, well, learn to use a schedule. And you think, I don't want to be hemmed in by a damn schedule. And it feels like a prison. And, and fair enough, man. It is a form of prison. Mm. But, but It's also a form of order. Well, this, this is the, and it's also a precondition for successful, additional successful yes. creative endeavors. So one of the things I recommend for, for people to do is to use a calendar like Google Calendar, but not to design the day they should have. Use the calendar to design the day that you would want to have mm. because you can make a calendar your friend if you don't make it a tyrant. Yeah. So you don't want to build a tyrant into the system. You, you want to be intelligent about it because if you're going to schedule your time, you have to understand that there are things that you need to do that you should do because if you don't do them, you're going to fall behind and that will be counterproductive. Mm. It isn't because someone's wagging their finger at you and saying that this is a moral imperative, even though that might be part of it. It's because there are obligations that you have to fulfill or you fall farther behind and the obligations get bigger. Yeah. And that's a bad pathway. Mm. So you have to build some of that into the schedule, but a lot of it can be, well, okay, tomorrow, I want to have the sort of day that I would really be pleased at having by the end of the day. And I want to build in a schedule that I would stick to as well. And so you have to have some appreciation for your own weaknesses. You lay out a schedule and you think, well, would someone like me actually do that? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then you modify the schedule until you think that you would do it and that you would be pleased if you did do it. Mm. And then, then the schedule can start to become your friend. And I think if you're not a person who's orderly by nature, the schedule has to be your friend because otherwise you won't use it. So it's funny you say that. I just, my most recent book that I launched is called Routine Equals Results. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very short, concise book. Um, I designed it to be because you don't want war and peace on how to manage your diary and your life. Uh, and it's pretty much exactly that. Um, I think I'd just add a couple of little things. The paradox again. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm obsessed by the paradox in everything. Um, so... You plan a schedule, and I think that your distinction of the end of the day, you'll know, you'll be pleased with. That's different from in how you feel in the moment. Yeah, yes, Cause, definitely. Because how can you, you need to second guess yourself to know that you're doing the right thing strategically, but in the moment it might frustrate you. But at the end of the day, you'll be pleased. And, yeah, and so that yeah. requires discipline. So I think if someone sees a, a diary schedule as a, a, an initial test, so design the structure like you said, try and end of the day I'm pleased, test some things, never see anything as permanent. Mm -hmm. So Okay, that worked for me at the end of the day, yep, that didn't. Yep, yep, You've also got to monitor your energy levels because we all eat at different times. 
Um, and also, this was really important, once I created this, because I tested for months, um, what coffee to drink at what time, what mm -hmm. food to eat at mm -hmm. what time, mm -hmm. obviously wrapping in my kids and my vision work and all the things that were for me non-negotiables in the day, doing some things I knew I'd wriggle out of that I hate doing, but I knew, like you say, at the end of the day, I'd be proud that I did. Because yeah. discipline, while it's hard, is rewarding at the end when you, you feel that sense of mm -hmm. deeper happiness when you've gone through well, it. Well, and those things that you want to wriggle out of, if you do wriggle out of them, they the compound pain is worse. and yeah. kill you. Yeah. So you've got you to get mm. on top of those things. And then, I found this important, let someone else manage your schedule. Because I know what I'm like. And yeah. I'll wriggle out the very things I know are right for me because I can. Yeah. Um, whereas if you have an assistant or even just a system yeah. that... The, you follow your diary. Yep. So you create the diary, you test the diary, mm -hmm. and then you give it to someone else mm -hmm. to, to manage it. Because mm -hmm. the amount of times I'm saying to my assistant Louise, I don't want to do that. And she's like, you're doing it. Yep. Because you know that's the right thing yeah. to well, do. Well, and you might need, like it might actually be, you say, well, you don't want to do it. It isn't that all of you is saying that. It's like it's the child 50, in my moment. 51% well, of you doesn't want to do it. Okay, or the decaffeinated then, me. Yeah, yeah. well, it could, could easily yeah. be. But then if you have someone else come along and say, no, you need to do it, then the 49% of you that wants to do it all of a sudden wins because mm. it gets that little extra boost. Yeah. And so it is really useful, too, to know where your weaknesses are and then to help mm. and to institute people around you who will buttress you at yes. your weak points. So, and everyone has their weak points. Mm. They're the comp, they're the what? They're the, they're the, uh, the counterpart to their strong mm. points. So th this is, again, the paradox thing that, like, I really want to get this message out that you cannot have one without the yeah. other. You can't yeah. have all the upside without the downside. Yeah. And I think most of us, it's easy to see downside when it's there. We're probably all focused on that. And when we're feeling good, it's easy to see upside. And I, if I think of anything good in my life that's happened, business, financial, whatever, it's in seeing the upside when all I initially would have seen is downside mm -hmm. and vice versa. So any team members around you that challenge you, that you might ordinarily push away, see the upside in their skill traits and their personality traits. Mm -hmm. Like the people who hold you back, well, actually, they stop you making from mistake, make, making mistakes, and they pre-select your ideas for you yep. and let you go with the ones that really are good. Yeah, they're also, they also sort of represent, they also represent the resistant marketplace, mm. right? So if you, if you have a scheme that you're putting forward and you can't sell it internally, well, those people are representative of, at least in part, of the people you're going to try to sell to externally. Mm. And so, again, that's the advantage of quick failure. If you can't make the sale within your own organization, it's like, well, that's possibly because what you're selling isn't going to sell. Mm. So, or, that, or you're not very good at selling it. You haven't crafted your message properly. And the, the, one of the things you pointed out earlier with regards to the ability to tolerate strife and conflict and the paradox is that's absolutely crucially important because there really isn't any more anything any different than that there's nothing in that that's any different from actually thinking because thinking actually is conflict it's the pitting of opposing mm. viewpoints against one another and it's very stressful and 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 produces a tremendous amount of tension but the question is in part do you want to figure that out in abstraction even though that's very stressful, or do you want to live that out in the world? Mm. And the answer is, man, you better think it through, because even though that's stressful, it's way less stressful than, than, th than living it out in the world. Mm. So, and it, it is so useful to be in that tension of opposing opinions, mm. so even though it's hard. Yeah, where much innovation, much creativity, many solutions to problems, they're like that mm. 
that next stage beyond that tension, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Which of course, emotionally, none of us want to go through. Mm -hmm. So we try and avoid it, mm -hmm. play safe mm -hmm. or, or whatever. Put it off. Yeah. So, or not say what you think because yeah. then that conflict won't emerge. Mm. That's another advantage to being around disagreeable people. Agreeable people say agreeable people won't produce a lot of conflict. Yeah. But disagreeable people tell you what they think. And maybe Which they're is right. vital to have people well, around that yeah. because the ego completely well, that's, resists Well, that. that's another thing, especially vital. if you start to become successful. Yeah. It's like, well, you need some constraints on your egotism. Yes. <laughs> well, so then you need disagreeable people around you because they'll provide that constraint. Yeah. And, and, you, and you also pointed out that, let's say you're successful and that makes you happy, right? And it might. And, and that's part of that ego inflation process mm. is positive emotion. People that, that have a lot of positive emotion are impulsive because positive emotion says, make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. And fair enough, but that can lead you down a very impulsive path. You yeah. see that with people who are manic because they're re really full of yeah. positive emotion. Which but is sometimes the scariest part. My dad has a manic depression. Mm -hmm. um, and s sometimes when he's the highest, that's the scariest oh, part. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And mean, you're sort of semi-relieved mm -hmm. because he's out of the depths. Yeah. But it's a big warning sign. Yeah, yeah. I've made some of my biggest mistakes in life when I've been, woohoo! Right, yeah. right, right. Well, that's exactly yeah. it, is that you have that motivational impetus, yeah. but it's unconstrained. Yeah. And so that's, that's that you're absolutely right. That's un, and, and of course, depression is an absolute catastrophe for, for people, but it's in people in their manic phase that go and rack up $50,000 yeah. in credit card bills in one day because they have this brilliant idea yeah. that's going to revolutionize the world. And, you know, maybe it will, but... But then you end up with the fifty thousand or the five hundred thousand mm. dollars in rapidly accrued debt. Yeah, and and you can certainly see that in the explosive phase of development of of companies when mm. everyone's hyper enthusiastic. It's like fair enough, mm. and the enthusiasm also sells, right? Because yeah. you, 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 it's hard to be a non enthusiastic salesperson. But but then there, you know, everyone says. Well, shouldn't we just be happy all the time? It's oh, like, well, there's another podcast on that. Yeah, yeah. well, no, yeah, no. Yeah. And the, the, because the first question is, well, what's the downside to positive emotion? Well, if there's no downside. We should be just as happy as we can be. It's like, no, manic people. Humanity are too would happy. be gone in a generation mm -hmm. yeah. if there was no, if there was just happy emotion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nothing would get done. Mm -hmm. Nothing would get fixed. Mm -hmm. And we'd make all sorts of, we take all sorts of risks that would be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you think, well, you need people who say no. God, that's painful. You need people who get in the way. You need people who are orderly. And for people who are entrepreneurial and expansive in their temperaments, that's all like, oh, my God, those are prison walls. Those yeah. are, but no, they're not. They're necessary structure and protection. Mm. And then again, don't be contemptuous of your damn sales and marketing people because you're bloody lucky that you've got them. And they're rare people. Mm. And that's also true of that set of skills that you might, that's a set of skills you need to develop if you're, if you're a creative person and an artist, mm. don't be contemptuous of that with your false romanticism. Yeah. Oh, I shouldn't have to sell it. It's, it's, it's a great product in and of itself. And all I'm doing is selling out. Yeah. It's like most people don't sell out because they never have the damn opportunity. And so if you can manage the sales and then you think, well, I'm going to maintain my artistic purity despite the fact that you could manage the sales, well, then you're making an ethical decision. Mm. But if you're not selling out because no one wants what you're doing, that's no moral victory. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the most successful artists in the world, because I wrote a book called Money and I've studied this in depth. 
being a, a previous artist myself. So like commercially, I made business work, but commercially, I couldn't make art work. Yep. But my business commercially has really benefited from my artistic side. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I could say it's a shame I failed commercially in art, but maybe that was brought me to who, where I was. But Damien Hirst, Tracy Emin, uh, Picasso, um, Warhol, all very commercially savvy yep. artists who you could argue till the cows come home if, if they're better or worse artists than mm. others. That's subjective, isn't it? But they embraced the commercial side of art and they will probably go down in history. Mm -hmm. So, and Well, the, you know, that's the thing too, is that the, there isn't a lot of difference or the boundaries between sales and marketing and communicating are, are blurry. Mm. It's like, well, you know, people are also very skeptical, for example, of advertising and find it intrusive. But, you know, if you actually want to buy something, an advertisement is quite helpful. Yeah. So what people really don't like are badly targeted ads. Yeah. And, you know, the advertising people are trying to solve that problem. But there, but if you have done something brilliant and original and no one knows about it and no one ever will, well, that might even be more of a catastrophe than never having done it at all. Yeah. Because then you have this thing that's actually of value and you have to suffer with the fact that no one knows about it, mm. right? No, you have to conjoin that ability to produce creatively with the ability to communicate. Yeah. And sales and marketing is and an integral part of that. Well, that's the next complex problem. And, mm. you know, and people often who are artists, they're, they're also contemptuous of the commercial world. Well, everything has a price. It's like, well, there's actually some real advantage to everything having a price, you know, because it helps you, it helps you value your work in a, in a, in a cooperative endeavor. Yeah. And it also puts a limitation of sorts on you because you need limitations. It's mm. like, well, if you have an idea, let's say you're creative. You have a whole bunch of ideas. It's like, well, which ideas should you pursue? Well, one constraint you can use is something like, if the idea that I'm interested in has absolutely no commercial viability, then maybe I should put it lower in the priority list. Because you need some mechanism to put things lower in the priority list. Mm. One of our rules for, for product development was that, well, we, we, had to, we had to like the idea. It had to be compelling. We, ha we wanted it not to do harm to people. We wanted it to help people. We wanted it to be scalable. But then we also decided very early on that we weren't going to make things that wouldn't generate a profit because it was a constraint. It's mm. like, well, if, it, if we can't do all those other things and make a profit, it's a bad idea. Yeah. So, and... and and, and that's, that, that's helpful if you have too many ideas. Mm. And what people don't understand is profit is required to reinvest back well, into infrastructure yes. for growth and everything else. Well, that's the other thing. Yeah. And I used to be an artist and I had to buy the cheapest canvases with the cheapest paint right. and the cheapest tools because I had no money. Yeah. You know, Harry's just bought, you've just upgraded these cameras, haven't you? Well, if he was, you know picking fag butts off, off the floor and going down KFC and licking well, people's fingers for food. Well, right, be able right, to right. No kidding, no kidding. Well, the other thing too is we could get the ethics about this right. It's like, well, is there something wrong with, with generating money? It's like, well, it depends on what you're going to do with the money. Mm. You know, like if you're going to spend it all on hookers and cocaine, then probably that's reprehensible. 
But if you're going to... Well, it still employs the hookers. Well, the hookers might not think it's reprehensible. I suppose neither do the cocaine growers. But, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can argue that there are better and worse things that you could do with your money. Mm. If you're guilty about making money, then maybe you should think harder about what the hell you're going to do with the money. Because yeah. there's some good things you can and do with the money. And why you feel guilty about making money well, in the first yes, place and where yes. that comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, wh and what's productive about You say, well, I don't want to be greedy. It's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. Don't be greedy. Yeah. Good rule. But, you know, you have a family. You could support them. You could invest the money in the community. There's all sorts of positive things that you could do with your money if you were very, very thoughtful yeah. about how you decided to spend it. People don't get so, this. Sorry to jump in. Yeah, People no don't problem. get that Mother Teresa was basically a money launderer. They just mm -hmm. don't get this. A lot of her money came from Robert Maxwell. And, you know, a lot of people that would be reprehensibly mm -hmm. evil to most of society. But she would take money. She didn't mind where it came from. And then she would do her work mm -hmm. with said money. So. Yeah, instead of being guilty about yeah. making money, you could think hard about what yes, it is I'll take that you the want money. to do with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do something useful with mm. it and productive. Yeah, that's a much... And I would say that's also your response. If you happen to be one of those people to whom money is disproportionately flowing, right, because you've started to become successful and you've hit that acceleration mm. point where you're getting more because you already have, then the ethical requirement isn't to be guilty about that, but to think, okay, how can I use this money which I have been bequeathed in the most responsible manner possible? Mm. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to think. And you can do that with some error. Yeah. So. Of course. So we've got to start wrapping this up. We've got to sort of wrap it up now. We've got to sort of wrap it up now. Yeah. All right, then. Can, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, okay. Yep. You need a meaning to sustain you through life. And most of that meaning is actually to be found. And this goes back to the idea of, of conscientiousness that we were talking about earlier. Is It's in the adoption of responsibility that most people find the fundamental meanings in their life. That's really worth knowing. Because you might ask, well, why should I be responsible? The answer is, well, you need to do something meaningful because otherwise life's suffering will make you bitter. Mm. And bitter is only where you start. It's not where you end. So... People might be interested in the book. I also, I, I told you about understandmyself.com where you can get your personality assessed quite rapidly. That should be useful. I also have this other program that your view, listeners might be interested in at selfauthoring.com. And that is three programs. One helps you write about your past life so that you can figure out how you got to where you are and where you are. One helps you do an assessment of your virtues and, and, and faults so that you can capitalize on your virtues and rectify your faults. And the last one, which we've most thoroughly tested, helps you develop a personal vision and create an implementable plan for that vision. And we know that if university students do that, for example, that they're about 25% less likely to drop out of college. Mm. So, and it's really useful for people to have a articulated and consciously developed vision for their life and a plan. Because yeah. then you're not buffeted around by the, the winds of fate to quite such a degree. And you need a plan. You need a plan because you need goals. And you need goals because it's in the pursuit of valued goals that almost everyone finds positive emotion. So, and th that's a really useful thing to know. And so what that also means is the more noble your goals, which is the theme in 12 Rules for Life, the higher the probability that you'll be deeply engaged while you're pursuing them. That's a justification for deep philosophy. Okay, Jordan, thank you very you much. Bet. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you too. Thank okay. you.